Thank you for tuning in to Right Size Security with Simon Gibson and Steve Ginsberg. If you like this episode, please check out the other episodes in this series and go to gigaohm.com to find more of Simon and Steve's research and insights. Welcome to Right Size Security, the podcast where we'll discuss all manner of infosec, from enterprise security to practical security every business can use, all the way down to end user security. Your hosts for Right Size Security are me, Simon Gibson, longtime CISO, and Steve Ginsberg, leader in technical operations and former CIO. In our last episode, we discussed how a CIO might go about building a security program using the perspective of the CISO or CSO. In this second of a two-parter, we're going to discuss the challenges a CISO or CSO faces getting a program built around the obstacles uh, faced working with the CIO and the other business units. All right. So current events, um, we realize that, you know, we tape these podcasts and sometimes they don't air as current. So we had this first section called current events. But what we kind of discussed were, even though these events are current and are happening now, they seem to have a very familiar feeling. They seem to happen all the time. It's one breach or another. It's one sort of cyber mistake or another or one set of controls that failed somewhere. They're sort of different names, but kind of all the same thing. Yeah, it, it made me wonder as I think about it, whether we're kind of in a time that has some duality, which is some things are the more they change, the more they stay the same. Uh, and I guess what I mean by that is we sort of have the spy versus spy. And so there's always going to be folks trying, the, trying to one up the, the other ones. But also it makes me think that in some ways security is still in kind of a nascent phase that we're still learning. I mean, I, I think that's true in some ways, but in others it isn't. There are certain things, there's like fundamental primitives that should not happen. And the thing that stands out for me is the Facebook, uh, you know, using clear text passwords to be stored. And, and to me, that is such a fundamental violation of all that is as anything to do with logins or passwords. It's, you know, at a former job, sometimes people would post hashes of shadow files in a, in a public ticket. And we would always have to admonish them not to do that. They didn't quite understand what's hash, but well, yes, it is. But if you have enough sort of compute power, you might be able to work out what's in that hash, you know, cracking the hash. Um, and, and kind of, I think maybe if you're using clear text passwords, you fundamentally don't understand how login works. Right. It makes me concerned that tech companies and, and even companies where tech isn't the focus, but they're involved in the di digital sphere, sometimes they're just moving too fast. Uh, yeah. And it is, as you say, a, a fundamental piece uh, is being missed because they just haven't addressed it with a security program at all. Yeah, or the programmers just don't have the experience to know. But a login, for example, never sends a password. When you type a password into a to a login form, whether it's a Unix terminal or a browser, your password's hashed. And then the hash is compared with the hash on the other side. And if they match, you get login. So, I mean, just the fundamental tenets of login are violated by using clear text passwords at Facebook, which I, I'm just really shocked at for a technology company. Yeah, and of course, you know, Facebook and, and others have been in the news for, you know, a range of issues of really not taking user privacy uh, seriously uh, or seriously enough. Yeah. Uh, and maybe this is a good example yeah, of that. It's some endemic sort of problem. And yours, the um, 800 million uh, users? Yeah, so, you know, there, were, there was an, another one recently, and just the, you know, kind of the raw scale of these. Uh, you know, really becomes a real question. And we've talked about Equifax in the past. Um, and, you know, people are certainly shocked that someone who had, you know, a company that had that kind of data 
uh, wouldn't have a better security program around it. Of course, we know it's very hard to make it so that something is absolutely not exploitable. And so there are challenges involved in some of these as well. But certainly we would encourage any uh, everyone to take security seriously, but also to scale. The more credentials you have, the more you should be considering yeah. that they have a value that someone might come after. Yeah, that's true. You know, we want to talk today about what it's like to build out a security program from the perspective of the CSO or CISO. And in some cases, the CISO or, or, or CSO is going to have resources that they manage. They might manage an IR team or a security operations center. Uh, they might manage the firewalls or they might not. They might manage uh, Active Directory or they might not. In most cases, at least as in my experience, CISOs uh, often have budget um, but don't always have direct authority or management. You know, They don't designate or delegate the responsibilities of actually pulling the wrenches on the firewalls. Sure. So for our audience, we're kind of turning the table a little bit this time. So last time we were talking about more from the CIO perspective, uh, which is certainly something where I had built up the program from that perspective. Simon has obviously built it from the CISO perspective. Since you're making the distinction between CISO and CSO, maybe you want to talk a little bit to the audience about just how you view that also. Yeah, I think it's different per organization. Um, I think, you know, when I think about the, the CSO role, uh, it's usually uh, more than specifically technical controls or more than governance, risk, and compliance or more than facilities, physical security. Or, I'm sorry, for the CSO role. The CSO role would sort of encompass all of that, where, where the CISO may or may not have facility security, you know, badges and locks and, and, and those kinds of things and, and, you know, access to certain rooms and whatnot. That may not fall under the CISO. That may sort of fall to facilities unless there's a CSO. In that case, all security probably rolls up under the CSO. Right. So it's kind of, the general would be maybe CISO is more likely to be digital only or, or mostly only. digitally scoped, right? Yeah. yeah. Or, or yeah. you know, again, depending on the organization, the CISO may have a component of security. Chief Information Security Officer in this company focusing more heavily on compliance. Yep. This heavily, this company focusing more heavily on audit. This company focusing more heavily on technology. Um, whereas the C CSO might have the CISO and some legal stuff and some privacy stuff, you know, and some physical security stuff. Um, and so I think that's just, it's the, the sort of defined scope of role, I think is a way to, to think. About yeah, it. sure. Yeah. That, that's helpful. Yeah. Um, when we look at a program, uh, when you think about the program, maybe either if it's Greenfield or starting within an organization, from kind of the, the highest level, the, the territory, where would you start? Um, for, for, for CISOs specifically listening and people who are working at, you know, again, I think you, know, you learn this quickly in the space. If you are a practitioner, you learn very quickly that um, to be successful, you really want to be thought of as an enabler. When I, you know, I have this story I like to tell about, uh, you know, brakes on a car. Uh, if you didn't have any brakes, you wouldn't go more than three miles an hour. Your car wouldn't stop. You wouldn't want to wreck it. So you just keep your car under five and try to coast to a stop and maybe grind your wheels into the sidewalk, slow down, but, but you would not go quickly. And security gives you the ability to go quickly. And I think as a CISO or a CSO, any part of a security organization, telling the business units, no, you can't do it because it poses security risk is not the way you want to be thought of. Now, there are going to be times where there truly are risks and you want to stop a certain thing or you want to make sure a process is secure. But if your office is you know, thought about as, as being the, the, the office that says no, um, the, it just it, it, people will go around you and it'll actually create more problems for you than, than, than trying to be an enabler. So I think it's so important for people to think about security as an enabler. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. I certainly know that the approach and interaction with a business is going to be super important for all, all organizations. Totally. And then, so how do you kind of start a program, start building it up and have that culture built into it? Yep. Um, you know, I think the first thing, it's sort of like the first hundred day problem for any anybody in a new job. Um, I think for the CISO or the CSO, uh, I, I'm going to sort of speak to the technical CISO because that's my love, that's my expertise, um, understanding compliance frameworks and audits that I've worked on. But again, my my sort of background has more to do with building out technical controls and and testing technical controls that other people build and making sure they work and not always to their their you know to their making them happy. Um, you know, I think the first thing to start is figure out where things are fragile um, and where things are robust. Look throughout the company and figure out you know lines of business. Um, an assessment throughout all lines of business. Come up with the you know most. 15 most pressing questions you think you can ask to a line of business and go ask all the lines of business. What's the one thing if it vanishes, if it stops working or if it becomes degraded is going to stop your line of business from working. Um, there's this, this term CIA, which is not the culinary Institute of America. It's, it's the, it's, it's um, confidentiality, integrity, and, and availability. And it really just means, can you get to something because it's up, someone hasn't DDoSed it or taken it down. Can you reliably trust the information it's giving you? And can you get to this resource without anybody else seeing the data between you and it? And, and it's a nice paradigm. I think kind of where that paradigm fails, though, is with resilience. It doesn't talk about kind of operating in a degraded state or how long you can be in a degraded state and what are some of the things you can do to bounce back from it. But I think if you take that paradigm and you think about integrity and availability, um, Really, that's just good engineering. I mean, you would under like web scale and building out stuff to to scale a top 95th percentile and run. That's like availability and integrity, right? Yeah, we spent a lot of time thinking about failover. And, and yeah. as we touched upon in the last episode a little bit, well, what goes wrong when your plan goes wrong? You know, or what, yeah. what happens when you're back, you fail over a backover system and it fails? Yeah. Uh, we had for a while, we started to say three is the new two as we were growing, yeah, yeah. which was that where we used to rely on, you know, two systems to keep us going all the time, a kind of uh, either live, live or, or front and backward, uh, you know, backup, uh, primary backup, then suddenly you need a third option as well. Yeah, for sure. The, the, the interviewing lines of business, I had a, a, a really good experience in doing that, where the one thing that almost, you know, more businesses had in common than anything. So one company, many lines of businesses, operations, delivery, human resources, sales, you know, hiring, engineering, manufacturing line, all the different lines of business. The one thing that they had in common that if it failed was surprising to me, it was the telephones. That if they lost our, our PBX, they couldn't take customer support calls, a bunch of ordering stuff failed. I mean, it was the one thing, certain sales things broke, treasury functions to pay people broke, like all kinds of weird things that you would think probably wouldn't matter if the phones went down turned out that it was the one thing across eight or nine different lines of business that if it failed, it would hurt all of them. Yeah, this this was a great thing to bring up because one of the things I've learned as you build out a program, as you were saying, you need to ask the lines of business because not everyone is like you. So for example, in our department, the desk phones meant nothing. Yeah, Everyone had cell phones. No one ever answered their desk phone no or used it for mail. anything. It was all email. Yeah. It was all, uh, you know, online chat or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. And then the next thing is, you know, once you kind of understand who relies on what, understanding how much, how it's supported, who who takes care of the thing, 
you know, if it's a telco, do you have, if it's a PBX, do you have a, a contract with somebody? Is it a Nortel switch of some sort? Somebody comes in and services, you have a local person. What, what does your failover look like when that thing breaks? And do you understand how it works? Whatever, you know, it could be access to a particular room. If the badge readers go down, what's the process we're going to do? I don't, you know, sort of just depends on the company. And then I think the next question is like, how much telemetry does that thing give off? Can you, can it be monitored? Is someone monitoring? And is that part of your security program? Would someone try to hurt you by taking it down? And you can start to prioritize and understand how you manage and build out your program kind of based on the type of, you know, what's supported and how much telemetry it gives you. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. One of the things from the, the last episode we talked, you asked about was there executive sponsorship to try to get us going in the security program? And as I mentioned, a bunch of it in our case was kind of top up. But there was one question that actually had started it, which was uh, the then CTO asked me if we were uh, hacked, would we even know? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of a lot of the program in our case was brought with that question, which I think was actually a great central question to modify uh, or to motivate us yeah. and to motivate us to modify our behavior to look into in each one of these sections. Would we even know for a situational awareness yeah, kind of stuff? Absolutely. And apart from the sort of the things what are the current policies? I mean, again, a lot of security is about creating a set of policies and controls, you know, both active controls that, you know, will, um, uh, uh, you know, actively block you from getting somewhere to detective controls. Like, is this thing being followed? And then is your policy being reflected digitally? That's kind of the main, the next main question is, can, can you say like, well, we built it to do this, but is it actually doing this? You want to understand kind of, you know, not only what the compliance and right procedure should be, but also sort of what's the cadence of activity around it and what are the, you know, are you actually doing it as it was designed? Yeah. And, and with policy, there's also, that's a whole world of in of itself, right? There's the, all the subtlety of is something a guideline or a rule? Yeah. Uh, right. Is it a suggestion of best practice? Or we can all forget about that when the quarter's closing because we got to, who cares about all that, right? Yes. All those policies were great, but we got to close this quarter. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, who's responsible for what? Uh, um, you know, very often, I think in the CISO role, especially if the CISO doesn't have a big staff, they are sort of the one throat to ring for the executives. And so they're responsible to saying whether or not we're secure, but they may not be able to implement the security. And therefore, there's a lot of managing by influence as the CISO. And so the other part that I, and I think this gets lost is, well, it's a security thing. The CISO guy knows it. But if it's a business process somewhere buried deep down in some part of the business that makes a whole lot of money, but they have this really obscure process and it's just how we've done it for the last 10 years, the CISO can't possibly know what that business process is. And so really understanding who's responsible for that line of business, who owns that process, who owns it when it breaks, who knows it the best, is it documented, is it supported? Those are the kinds of things that the CISO needs to figure out. CISO won't know everything about how the business is run, nor should they, but but understanding who owns what in the lines of business is super important. Yeah, and of course that stuff's going to change over time too. So even yeah. even if you know one day, a yeah. month later, you're not going to know all those things again. Yeah. Some, things, some things will have changed. Yeah, anybody who's put together a, um, you know, like a run book for a crisis preparedness, it, you know, three months after you've built it out every, you know, you have to go back and change all the names because the boxes are still there, but somebody's moved on from that job. So your point of contact and the phone number, it's, it's difficult often to keep those, those current and fresh. They, they do age out quickly. Yeah. You mentioned crisis management there. Uh, curious, what are your thoughts about kind of communication style or commu how to structure good communications during crisis for crisis? As you said, 
the board is likely to come to you or CEO exec staff is likely to come to the CISO and say, okay, tell us what's happening. I think, I think, you know, part of that's a good question. And that, what, what I recommend for, for the CISO is a threat model is go model your threats. What is it, you know, what are you worried about the most? What are your top seven priorities? And don't, you know, I, I personally pick things that are going to put us out of business. I, you know, if our payroll database leaks and it shows how much the CEO made, how much so-and-so spent on his expense report or she spent on her expense report, it's not going to be great for the business, but it may not put us out of business. So yes, it's yeah. important, but is it the most important thing? You know, and I think it, maybe it is for some companies, you know, certainly for Sony, it was a big deal when all the emails got out and sort of people's salaries and how people were treated, that was a very big deal for Sony. But I think for a lot of companies, it might be, you know, software you ship. If you ship an app to somebody's phone and you have millions and millions of customers or tens or hundreds of millions, and there's a Trojan or a backdoor in your app that causes people to lose money or materially be damaged, that will put you out of business. And so I mean, those are the kinds of things the CISO needs to think about. And so threat model your stuff. And then I think you kind of will get to an answer in terms of, you know, who, who you know, how that works. Yeah, absolutely. And then when there is such a crisis, then how about communication kind of during incidents and, and both it kind of, so there's at least two major realms, right? There's internal communication. What do you tell other parts of the company while things are happening? Right. Uh, and then, you know, what do you tell the outside world? Which obviously some of that's governed by law. Sure. Yeah. Of, different uh, states. And I think yeah. it's, it's very important to be prepared. Uh, I've yeah. always, uh, Again, within sort of the first, like right after the first 100 days, there's generally a, a create the crisis plan, and it's just a break glass, and it lives in the head of communications desk or the head of compliance or the head of legal, whoever needs to own that thing, so that when there's a crisis, that there's a PR firm on board, that there's a communication plan, that the right people can be notified, and that the, the playbook, you know, you know, this happened, insert this here, we have taken the appropriate steps and so on and so forth. And again, prepare that stuff in advance. For, right. For so then you don't have to create it in the midst of a crisis. And, and right. if you can't, you know, if you don't have the resources internally, go find a third party. Go find a third party that will support you. Get to know them. Do the T's and C's of the contract before the crisis hits. That way, when you bring on the paratroopers to help get you out of whatever trouble you're in, they already know you, you know them, the contract signed. And, and often... In my experience, when I've done this kind of work, um, I've been able to use these third parties as um, consultants to do reviews, to do, you know, just to threat, to, to threat model, to rank our programs, to give us advice. And so, you know, even if you don't use the money on a crisis, you can still get some pretty good, good work product uh, by, by, by retaining these companies in advance. Right. Yeah. That, that point of having the idea of the maturity of the security program is really a great thing as well. Like, as you're saying, yeah. understanding within the kind of the individual parts of the program and then the kind of the program overall to kind of be able to compare to peers and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what do you think about kind of what's a good overall st uh, structure for the department? Uh, you know, you have an organization you'd be building and then you're going to fit into the greater organization in some ways. You know, you mentioned a bit about that being influenced in a lot of cases, but, sure. but how do you think about that? It's a tough one. It's different for every company. In some cases, the CSO, CISO kind of functions report under the CFO. And in some cases, that's great. In some cases, they report under the CIO. In some cases, that's great. Um, in some cases, it's direct, you know, up into the CEO. It just, it depends on the org. Um, I think there are some inherent risks for an organization, a technology organization to manage their security. Um, if you're trying to ship a product and it's got bugs 
and you know, it's you you make money for shipping product, not for shipping secure product. At the end of the day, people don't write checks uh, for for good software; they write checks for software, right? I mean, that's you're going to ship the product, and I think security can sometimes take a backseat. So having some autonomy, I think, is a good thing. At the same time, that autonomy means getting stuff done can be harder because you're not necessarily part of that organization. And again, that goes back to the kind of horse training. So I think it matters, you know, by organization. Yeah, and we talked about. Uh... Previously, you were mentioning some of the ways in which you can move upline and kind of streamline to kind of get security built into product. Definitely. Having a, a penetration test done, having a real red team exercise done against either a core component of your code or, or you know, the corporate network at large or some component of a DMZ will often you know, yield a lot of valuable information. Um, and so you can sort of drive some behavior around what you want to get done that way. Again, it's you have to be very careful with that because if you are constantly breaking into things and showing what's broken, eventually people are going to want to just be able to fix things. And if you sort of get too many too many red tests done and they're, they're, you know, it's like calling someone's baby ugly. Eventually they're going to not want to hear from you anymore. You have to be careful about how you use this, but that's one way to drive behavior. Another way to build security in upfront, you know, again, people tend to motive are motivated. And this is just an unfortunate fact of human nature is that people are motivated by pain. Like when something is hurting or not right, people will do things to correct it. Um, again, security should be thought of as an enabler. So the more things security can do to show that they're enabling process and business, I think the more willing engineering teams and other teams are to bring them in. Yeah, no, we we often looked at it about trying to avoid that pain up front. Yeah. Uh, but you're right, motivating people in that way sometimes doesn't work because as you said, product deadlines, those type of things, sure. they, they, they have movements that they have to make. We did have some success moving up into the code repository, like tools that would scan code automatically yeah. uh, and that kind of thing. But the, as you say, the balance of that kind of communication back and forth with errors have been found, please fix them uh, and prioritize them. That, that's, a, that's a tough one from there. Yeah. Um, how do you think the security program uh, fits into the overall flow of the company? Um, you know, it's, it's, it has a lot to do with the, I think there's, there's three kind of areas I like to think about when I look at, you know, um, how a company should structure their program. Uh, you know, really it has a lot to do with the compliance regulations and environment that you're in. Like if you're regulated and you're part of the EU, you're going to have a certain set of rules. If you're in medical, you're going to have a certain set of rules. If you're managing credit cards or money, you're going to have a certain set of rules. Um, so your compliance environment, the next is your, your capabilities, um, you know, how much institutional knowledge is there? How much legacy stuff is there? And how much are you really, how much are you paying your IT team? I mean, I know it kind of sounds kind of cold, but really, do you have a, a, a type really strong engineers that are building and running your IT organization? Or have you sort of, you know, your IT organization had a lot of churn and, you know, there's not a lot, it's very sort of, um, you know, very level one help desk response and people age out of those roles. Are, is there a good support? And then, and then the last component, you know, it's, it's, technical capabilities, regulate, regulation, and then customer expectation. Who are your customers and what's their expectation of security? And that's kind of, you take those three into consideration and then that's kind of how you think about where you pipeline security through. So maybe to drill down a little, when you talk about technical proficiency of the IT staff, um, what would you extrapolate from that? So if you have more junior entry people or uh, maybe less proficient people for whatever reason, versus you have very strong technical people. How is that different for the, the CISO? Uh, obviously, that you have to consider the capabilities of the CISO's department, 
But yeah. then, but I think you were also maybe talking about the IT organization in general or the yeah. engineering stuff. Well, yeah, no, I think it's absolutely yeah. in general. It's to your point about putting a, you know, some kind of code scanning tool into the repo to check uh, for, you know, potentially just obvious errors in code. Um, you need engineering resources to be able to do that and to be able to run that. And, and that you have to have either not, not just people that are capable of putting that into the pipeline, people that are capable of maintaining it. Yeah. So there's like there's a staffing component around it as well. It's, do you have a role for somebody to do that, and is it staffed? Um, from an IT perspective, you know, if there's a lot of churn in the IT department, often IT staff has quite a lot of capability. I mean, they generally have some level of admin, if not domain admin, depending on kind of where you are. Most places I've seen tend to have a few trusted people that have domain admin, and whether or not they use that as their personal login for everything, or they have a separate dash a account for administrative things. You know, those are all the kinds of little details that, that highly proficient engineering staffs versus an IT department that, you know, there's a lot of churn against a lot of level one people who come through it. That's going to make a big difference for the program. It's, it's where the, where is the, where is it being resourced? Yeah. And I think that's what you have to look And that's at. really a common vector for red team tests and or real hackers to get into a windows environment, for example, yeah. with well, on the domain controller with a, with a link. Yeah, or the the domain admin. Yeah, and then um, that's a that's a good point that you brought up that relates to what do you try to own as a CISO versus what you, do you try to have other departments to do? So you know, you mentioned in engineering or in other departments. How, how do you kind of draw those lines if you have the choice, or you know, how do you broker? Where, where would you take a stand if you weren't getting the first choice of just it falling where that you want? That is a great great question. Um, it's going to depend on the CISO. I know. Uh, I, I, I kind of think where the most important controls that can hurt you the most are probably the things that the CISO should own. Um, and then everything else, the sort of business units can hold. I think it's difficult for a CISO organization, if you don't have a couple of programmers, to be able to deliver um, support to a programming organization. Um, if you want to get things done or build tools or connect tools together so that they work, you kind of need programmers. Um, so there's probably some, in my opinion, some level of software engineering that a CISO should own. Um, I, I also sort of believe that the, the demarcation between internet and internal, uh, whether or not there is actually any internal is a separate conversation, but, but really the, the kind of the core firewall controls, probably something that the CISO should own, or at least have a part of the change control process where somebody wants a firewall rule. It's, you know, a new line of business needs to connect X with Y, it should go through an organization to, to review that rule and make sure that that control makes sense. It fits into the policy. So the CISO should probably own, at least if not the actual change, you know, the mechanisms, the logins, but certainly some part of the review process. And I think incident response uh, is fine to put in the CISO's office. Um, again, though, you, you start running into this shared admin responsibility where if two separate groups have admin, it's really difficult to manage things. Um, and so again, that that collaboration between the CISO's group who may own incident response, so a machine's been compromised, an alert's been thrown off, we know something bad is happening. Well, now that has to get remediated. We need a memory image and we need, you know, this machine to be forensically examined and somebody needs a new machine, the business needs to keep going. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's IT or the CISO, but but it, it, there has to be a good sort of working relationship. Yeah, that when when you're starting to talk about incident response here, it just reminded me how these things do really branch off in a lot of discussion, you know, a lot of directions and discussion about scoping really becomes important. Like incident response, some of the same things that are in crisis communication will eventually be things that have nothing to do with digital security at all. 
right? Yeah. So, you know, a company may have a crisis, you know, as you mentioned, PR kind of crisis, and the, mm-hmm. those type of things, that those may be, have nothing to do with information security at all. Yeah. Uh, and yet a lot of those same procedures would be shared in kind of, kind of communication. Um, you know, you just mentioned outages of, of, of various kinds. And so sometimes when you have an outage, you don't know whether it's a security outage or just an equipment yeah. failure or coding failure, change failure uh, until you get into it. And then at a certain point, it will branch off and either become something for the CISO or not. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. How about network teams? Do you have any like specific, you alluded to that, but any kind of specific thoughts for, and again, this I'm sure will be different in different organizations based on who's there. But so firewall is one of the main things there. And you said to, to be in change, uh, network teams do even ACLs and things like that. And, yeah, sure. and, and that's maybe one step a little closer to networking, but still affects security. Uh, maybe probably somewhat similar, but do you feel any different about that or anything else kind of down that path? Yeah, I mean, I, a network team can just run a circuit from here to there and suddenly what wasn't a part of your threat model is now in your threat model, whether you know it or not. You know, I mean, that's, again, that's another sort of problem is is the, you know, the communications and whether it's, um, you know, collegial and informal or very formal through a change control process. I feel like the CISO is the, uh, a very key key part of establishing those kinds of controls. So network team says we're going to bring up a DR site, some data center. Okay, so that means we're going to turn on some DWDM or do something and get connectivity to some other area. Well, that should definitely be on the CISO's radar. Yeah, I think all that stuff's magnified a bit now in the cloud world too, that I think enterprises, you know, the default uh, assumption might be, hey, if it's an Amazon, they've got security, it's probably fine. But you're really just connecting VLANs into the cloud. And, the, and a VPN. Yeah. And now your corporate network is touching Amazon, which is touching the internet. Is there any security around that? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Cloud is a whole, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that is another you know, it is a huge bailiwick, especially, I mean, all the way from that example of a VPN to a cloud that's now the internet, you've just basically opened a hole in your firewall to the internet, to microservices that run and turn up and down. And those services then that need uh, some credentials to go get information from a database, maybe in your data center or on-prem or from another cloud service provider, how do they get from one or two or five or 10 hops and share federated credentials around to be able to pull, and especially if they're coming up and down quickly, being able to understand, you know, login, password equals this data, and now thousands of services that come up and down need that stuff. Yeah, and I think that they're coming up and down quickly is one of the new horizons that we've been getting closer and closer to that over time, but this idea that infrastructure really is ephemeral now. Yeah. Right. That in a containerized world, it's systems. That, yeah. 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 You can't count on an IP and a subnet to define a workload. Right. And I mean, I think for a long time we kind of said, oh, well, that's the such and such segment. You know, so, okay, fine. That, that's how, that, these are the rules for the such and such segment. And now, um, very much so. Not only is, not, is the IP sort of irrelevant, but the, the workload may migrate, you know, it may move around from machine to machine to subnet to subnet. Right. We uh, actually at RSA saw some very interesting companies that were working on precisely that and and some standards and open source organizations that kind of were focused around identity. And you know, we wrote a paper uh, in the security part under my practice at GigaOM, um, and it talks about identity being the next security perimeter. And I think that's true. I didn't coin that, but I, I really firmly believe that security and identity are now kind of, you know, they're just, they're linked to where... Um, uh, instead of being provisioned at a firewall for your idea, then you kind of get in and you get out and get out access to all your things. Really you get provisioned as a user and then based on your provisioning, you can access the thing. So it's like sort of ground up. Right. Everything is role-based 
yeah. to to what role you have in the company or what multiple roles you have in an organization. Or even, yeah. even more granular, um, in like a teaching hospital, for example, you may have someone who's a student by day and a nurse or a doctor by night. Right. And so during the day, they have a certain role and a certain set of access. And then at night, when they come to do their shift, their role now changes. So it's the same person, different, different use cases. Yeah. That, that's reminding me that, that just how roles to within a company, somebody changes jobs multiple times while they work at a company uh, that their security provisioning needs, needs to move with them. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing, the part, you know, when we're finishing as we're kind of getting towards the end about building this program, one of the most important things is to be able to track and measure. Um, and you need to not only be able to track and measure this with the rest of the company, um, you need to be able to track and report on it to your, to your boss, to your, to their peers. Um, you may have to report on it at a board meeting and you need to obviously be able to, you know, reward your people or, or, you know, understand who's doing what. And, and if you need more people or you've bought a tool that now decreases workload, you sort of have to be able to measure all this stuff. Uh, what I've done in the past is build tools and you can do it in a spreadsheet all the way to build a database and do it yourself. Uh, but track all your risks. Once that threat model is done, you know, record every single thing that happens, whether it's a, it's a stupid piece of malware on a machine that gets caught by an antivirus console and scrub to a systemic problem in network segmentation to, uh, uh, you know, if you've done an audit and you found that a policy says it should be one way and it hasn't happened and you found something different, track that as a risk. I mean, there are different kinds of risks and they don't have the same severity, but track everything. And then once you track everything, you can start to normalize the severity and then you can start to report on progress. Yeah, this is a good way to know if you want to make more investments to make the company more secure yep. or to gain back your own time or both, uh, then you'll have a good, good basis for that. I, I think every executive wants to know, if I spend X, how much more secure will I be? And if you're not tracking that, you don't have historical, you know, you don't have a historical trend, you know, well, we've, we can, we know we've spent X million over the past year. How, how more secure are we now as opposed to then? Right. It's pretty intangible really of how secure are we, Yeah. but at least if you can show things trending in the right direction. Yeah. Meantime to repair number of things found, you know, sometimes number of things found, the more is better, right? Now you're looking harder. So it doesn't mean that, well, we've, you know, last month we only had a thousand things and this month we had 10,000. Well, we started looking a lot harder this month. So that's a good thing, you know? Yeah. Right. That's right. It can actually, your trend can go in the wrong, what seems like the wrong direction. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, how do you manage change? So that you've built a great security program, it's humming along, but and the company it, that you're in is going to change, right? It's always going to change. Yeah. It's always going to change. I think it's be, and, and then this was, you know, I lived this for years, which was, you know, August, September, get business plans going, you know, October, November, meet and finalize business plans. Early December business plans are approved. Everything goes, the, the GL is funded on, you know, Jan 4th or whatever. And then, you know, January 15th, everything's changed. There's nothing, all the business plans are gone. The number one priority thing you had in December is now number seven because there's five more, six more priority things in front of it. Be flexible. You know, I think there is, in security, there tends to be a lot of, you know, this particular problem will end the world or this will be a terrible thing if we let this happen. And I think, you know, the security practitioners need to stay flexible and, and, you know, things will change. M and A will happen. New partnerships will happen with new companies. Being flexible is key. Um, leadership will change. The product may change. You may get new products that you ship. You may ship a different version there. You know, 
some new enhancement will happen in the cloud is a great example. Your company that was once very much, we're never going to put anything in the cloud may now start to put loads of workloads in there. Really the key is just is flexibility, have a program and a framework and then be flexible within it. You mentioned partnerships there. Maybe we'll probably deal with that in more detail in a future episode, but, but maybe now since it's, you brought it up, what's kind of your, your top list for you've got a product company of some kind or you know, some important part of the, the digital flow of the company. Now there's a new partner that wants to participate from the security org out. What are your kind of either top questions, or your top procedures to, to, to decide whether you're ready to go join networks, you know, they want to join to the network somewhere uh, that right. belongs to another company. Right. Um, I think it's, it's, that gets into a whole, like a, just a business review. What are, you know, what are we trying to accomplish as a business? And, and how critical is this partnership, not just to our business, but to the critical path of us shipping a product. And if they're directly in the critical path, like if they break, we can't ship our product then obviously you need to give them more attention and you spend time with them. And if you need an auditor, you need to talk to their security people and look at their ISO or whatever, you know, and, and meet them and see, do they do change control? Do they seem to have a, do they have a written program in place that you can see? Do they have evidence of control and, and some kind of accountability? Um, and then, you know, the answer may be no. And then, so what do you do? Right. And then, so again, zero, zero to like the least amount of trust possible. What do we actually need to get the business done? And, and, it's all about being flexible. Yeah. I think this is an area where a lot of our peers spend a bunch of time trying to figure out what limited access would solve it first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but to your point, even, you know, even limited access, you really want to know who's on the other side of that, yeah. uh, that limited access and then kind of grow things only appropriately yeah. uh, with all that. Uh, great. Well, it sounds like we've described kind of uh, the main thing that security leaders should be looking when they're building programs and, and uh, working with a business to, both get that established, get some important wins, uh, and then move in a place where it's sustainably growable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the CISOs and the CSOs listening, um, you know, again, everyone sort of, there's always a slightly, there's no one right way. I get asked this question a lot. So, you know, tell us the secret thing that the CISO knows that, that they want to do it. And the answer is, you know, especially you get asked us a lot from sales organizations. What is the thing the CISO you know, that I need to tell the CISO that they're the most worried about. And the answer is know the CISO you're talking to, you know, are you talking to us, you know, what are his or her concerns? Are, are, are they a CISO that has, you know, lots of compliance and regulation and they, they're constantly in the soup with auditors and their, their job is really just running around answering the mail and trying to get things to the point where the, the policy makes sense. Are they, a, you know, a technical CISO? Are they trying to build out technical controls? Are they in charge of the firewalls? Are they not in charge of the firewalls? Are they horse trading? What, you know, know who the CISO is. That's the most important thing you can do when working with the CISO. So I think that's it, right? That sounds really great. Thanks, yeah. Simon. It's a great conversation. Thanks, Steve. If you enjoyed this episode of Right Size Security, please check out the other episodes in this series. Simon's recent report for GigaOM Research focuses on advanced behavioral analytics and threat detection. To find out more about next-generation information security, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future-forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.